0: may or may not know that we've spent really now like a couple months in this book of first kings we're really going to spend all the way through summer into the fall so we'll ultimately end up spending about a full year in first kings Uh, first kings is this book that in many ways narrates the decline of the nation of israel the falling apart of this once proud empire but it doesn't start like it's going to be a tragedy Uh, It starts with an awful lot of promise. David has a son named Solomon who seems to be exceedingly wise, who seems to be the sort of king that is going to exceed his father, which is hard to do because in Jewish life, David is the king above all kings. David is the king uh, par excellence. But eventually, as time goes on, all of Solomon's little demons become big demons, all of the, the things that, that might have struck you as odd about Solomon when he was younger get worse and worse and worse as he gets older. Uh, two or three years ago, uh, the European Space Agency was able to land a satellite onto a moving asteroid. A uh, fascinating bit of science and an incredible accomplishment. When I was reading the article about what had happened... One of the things that they mentioned is because of the vast distances involved in space travel, if you're off even by the slightest degree at the launch over the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of miles that are being traveled, that little off-kilter bit in your calculations becomes astronomical. And so this is kind of what we see in Solomon is in his younger years, there's these few things that you're like, ah, that's a little odd. But as time goes on, that minor course correction becomes worse and worse and worse until Solomon ultimately begins to worship other gods. And these are gods that we know historically were worshipped through child sacrifice. So Solomon begins to offer the children of Israel to false gods. And so the one true God, the God of Israel, comes against Solomon in judgment. He says, I am taking the kingdom from you. Not you so much, but taking it from your son, taking it from your household. And he does. He takes the kingdom from the hands of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and he gives it into the hand of a man named Jeroboam, whose name conveniently rhymes with the name of Solomon's son. But Jeroboam, a few years earlier, had encountered this prophet on the road to Jerusalem, and the prophet had essentially made some promises on behalf of God to him. Listen, I am going to give you the nation of Israel. I'm taking it from Solomon. I'm taking it from David's house. I will give it to you if you keep the commandments, if you walk in righteousness, if you live a holy life, this will go well for you. Uh, your kingdom will be long-lasting. Uh, your dynasty will be firmly established. But Jeroboam seems an awful lot like you and I. Jeroboam seems like, like a deeply distrustful man. Because the promise of God is, I'm going to give you the nation of Israel. I'm taking it from Solomon's house. All you need to do to keep it is keep my commandments. And Jeroboam says to himself in chapter 12, if the people of Israel keep worshiping the God of David, all of the people who have abandoned the house of David will turn back and they'll kill me. We need new gods. That's that's how we'll solve this problem. At the heart of Jeroboam is this deep distrust that God will actually do what he said, that God will actually make good on these promises, that God actually wills his good. I know that you said that things would go well if we followed you, but I don't really believe you mean that. So I'm going to make my own gods. I'm going to make some new gods. But they're not really new, actually. If you're, if you're familiar with the history of Israel, when Israel leaves Egypt in the Exodus, they invent their own gods. It's this astounding thing. It only happens a couple months after they've been led out of Egypt— And they make a golden calf, and they say, this is the God that led us out. And Jeroboam essentially goes back to the cult of the golden calves. The golden calf, he makes two of them. Not to be outdone. He's like, if you're going to worship one false god, I'm going to make two twins. It'll be great. So he creates two golden calves, and he says, these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. If you've got gods, you need altars. That's where you worship these gods in the ancient world. And so we find ourselves in this text at the foot of chapter 13. Jeroboam has built an altar in Bethel to worship these false gods that he's invented. And in sort of our modern day and age... When you build something new, whether it's a new restaurant, new business, you have some sort of like a, a christening ceremony, whether you have the mayor cut the ribbon, uh, whether you do what Chick-fil-A does and then the first hundred people to get into their new store get free Chick-fil-A for life and like a new car or whatever, I don't know, they do all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, but whenever we open something new, we want to celebrate it in some way, sort of the grand opening of new businesses is something that's marked as a special occasion, and it's no different with the opening of this altar to these false gods that Jeroboam has built. We're stepping in, in chapter 13, into the middle of sort of the coronation ceremony of this altar. But I I do need to say this before we jump into the text. Um, I now have been uh, pastoring this ministry for about four years. And if you go back and think through sort of the portions of Scripture that I've preached through, they lean really, really heavily towards the New Testament. Uh, so in the four years that I've been here, and Corey and I have been working together, uh, we've preached through the book of Colossians, the book of Jude, the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus, and then 2 Corinthians. Uh, we have not walked verse by verse through any book of the Old Testament. Every once in a while, we'll jump out of the way, and we'll, we'll spend some time in a passage like Corey did last week. But I just want to confess to you, the reason why that's been is because I am kind of afraid of the Old Testament, uh, there, there is a fear that I have here, and, and that fear comes from the fact that so often I encounter passages in the Old Testament, and I go, cool, <laughs> that's great, that happened, I'm sure it's important, don't know what to do with it, don't know how I'm going to talk about that for 30 minutes, I don't know how I'm going to preach this, uh, I mean, I can stand up here and read it and go, Next song. Because I don't know what to say, and I would venture to say that I'm not just confessing my sins to you all, knowing that nobody shares this. There's a sense that sometimes we come to the Old Testament, and it's weird. It's bizarre. It's foreign. The New Testament is so much easier for me. It's easier for me to, to exegete. It's easier for me to, to preach and apply. And passages like this one are, are the ones that make me go, oh my gosh, What on earth am I going to say? And just to give you an idea of what my week has looked like, whenever I preach through a portion of Scripture, I buy about four or five commentaries. I find the best ones I can. I buy five commentaries, and I just sit with those commentaries as I work through a passage. And three of the four commentaries I bought in the opening paragraph said, this is the weirdest passage in the whole Bible. (laughs) One of them said, this is the weirdest passage in the whole Bible, and also I could write a full book on it. I was like, man, why didn't you do that? Because I have to talk about it now, Peter Lightheart. Help me out. It's, it's, a, it's a strange text. And, and we need to be honest and upfront about that. But here's, here's what I hope is modeled in this ministry. Here's what I hope is modeled as we work through this portion of the Old Testament. The, the name Israel is not simply a name with no meaning. The name Israel means he who wrestles with God. It comes from an event in the book of Genesis where Jacob at night encounters this angel who is somehow identified with the person of the Lord and he lays hold of this angel and he wrestles with this angel all night and he says, I will not let go of you until you bless me. And what I hope is happening and when we gather together every week, but especially when we come to strange passages like this, is that we're adopting this sort of posture that Jacob has, this posture of Israel, that we come even to the strange passages of the Bible ready to submit to its authority and willing to lay hold of it and wrestle with it until it unfolds itself to us and shows us the majesty of God. That we would not look at these things and sort of cut and run and say, I'll I'll skip to something that's easier to understand. But maybe even over weeks, months, years, we would lay hold of these things and say, I will not let go of this text until God shows me his glory through it. I pray that that is something of what happens tonight as we work through 1 Kings chapter 13. Let me read for us the first portion of We're at the foot of Jeroboam's altar in Bethel, and we're told in chapter 13, verse 1, Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel, and Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. The man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. Human bones shall be burned on you. He gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, the ashes that are in it shall be poured out. When the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he had stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar was torn down, the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign of the man of God who had given it by the word of the Lord. So then the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God. Pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord. The king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. So here is the scene that we have. Jeroboam is standing at this altar, ready to offer sacrifices to false gods, ready to lead this nation of Israel astray into idolatry. And suddenly, out of nowhere... This man of God from Judah appears. We know nothing about him. We don't know his name. We know where he's from, but Judah is kind of just a vague, that's like saying this man of God from the south or this man of God from the north. That's a a wide swath of territory. We don't know what family he's come from. We don't know how the word of God has appeared to him. He just sort of strikes like lightning across the, the sky of Jeroboam's world. You may or may not be aware of this, but when the Bible was written, those handy-dandy chapters and verses were not there. So this is essentially, in the original Hebrew, a giant chunk of text. And in the Hebrew, normally when a narrative is moving, there's there's certain words that are meant to sort of give you an idea of time passing or anything like that. And in the Hebrew, this is an immediate event that just comes out of nowhere. This man comes from nowhere. We know nothing about him. He strikes like lightning. It's a shocking turn of events, and it's interesting, several years ago there's a a movie that came out, and on all of the posters, they advertised these sort of A-list action stars as being at the center of the film. Uh, They were in all of the trailers, they did all of the interviews, it was actually kind of this ingenious marketing ploy, because when you sit down to watch the movie, they kill all the A-list actors in the first five minutes. And you went, oh, interesting, this came out of nowhere. And and time and time again, there's these events in our lives that that seem to come out of nowhere. There's the sudden death of a loved one, the sudden end of a long-term relationship, the sudden conviction of sin that for a long time we felt nothing over. And this is what happens to Jeroboam. This man comes from nowhere, and he cries out against the altar saying, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. He will sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you. Human bones will be burned on you. It's strange. It's a strange passage. And I don't want to linger too long on this, but what needs to be understood here, what's happening is that in this day and age, for people who don't practice human sacrifice, uh, which Israel's been dabbling in, it doesn't seem Jeroboam's dabbling in it yet, To burn human bones on an altar was a way of defiling it. It was a way of making it unclean. It was a way of of, uh, dishonoring it. And so for for this man of God to say human bones will be burned on this altar, the, the very priests that serve this altar and worship these gods will be burned on it. It's a way of saying to Jeroboam, your cult of the golden calf is not going to last. Your idolatry that you're setting up will not be here long term. This endeavor to worship false gods, it's going to fail. He's calling out against these idols. So Jeroboam responds, we're told, by stretching out his hand against this man of God, which probably looked something like what you would see in like a fantasy movie. Guards, go get him. He's standing next to the altar. I almost imagine he's got like a knife in one hand and maybe like a goat in the other hand. And and the guy just appears and he drops the knife and sees him. I don't know, something like that. And this strange thing happens. His his hand, the very hand that he stretches out against this man of God, it it withers, it shrivels. In in all of the the commentaries that I read, they basically were like, we don't know what this is. Here's a couple medical options. So you best believe that I spent the afternoon on YouTube looking at videos of all of the medical options of what happened to this guy's hand. It's the weird part of YouTube. Um, Those of you who are like in med school or nurses or whatever, maybe you give me an idea of what you think this could be medically that happens. But it's, it's not insignificant that, that his hand sort of withers as he stretches it out, because only a few chapters before, when God sort of speaks to Jeroboam, he says, I will give the kingdom of Israel into your hand. And then he stretches out his hand against the word of God, and God judges it. There, there's something taking place here that, that takes place in some way, shape, or form in all of our lives. The very hand that Jeroboam stretches out to receive the gifts of God, he now turns against the word of God. He's more than happy to receive from God good things, but when God brings conviction, when God brings judgment, he'll stretch out his hands against him. There's this fundamental shift, but it's a shift that happens in all of our lives, that we take the things of God and use them as weapons against him. The book of James in the New Testament, it, it talks about how the very mouse that we use to praise God, to sing all of these songs that we've just sung, are the same mouse that we use to curse people who are made in the image of God. The, the irony is, is unbelievable. In our modern day, the mind that's meant to know God is used instead to think of new ways of sinning without getting caught. The heart that's meant to love Christ instead falls in love with the things of this world that Christ died to redeem us from. The hands meant to render praise to the incarnate one instead nail him to the cross. The hand that received the gift of the kingdom of Israel now turns itself against the God who gave the gift, and his hand withers. But it's interesting, because I, in reading this text and banging my head against this text all week, I see myself in Jeroboam, that, that when conviction comes, when it strikes like lightning across the sky of my heart, my First inclination is to find a way to silence it and move on. A couple months ago, I was having a conversation with some friends, uh, and they mentioned somebody who wasn't there, who we all considered a friend, and he'd done something stupid, and we laughed about how stupid he was. And then the conversation started devolving. I don't know if you picked this up, but sometimes you're you're talking to people, and you can just feel the conversation just sinking like down into hell in terms of its topic and direction. Maybe that's overdramatic. <laughs> that's how I felt. And, and eventually the conversation ends with us not really just laughing at a dumb decision our friend made, but just saying a lot of really mean things about this person and, and all the things that we don't like about him. And, and we never would have said that he wasn't our friend, uh, but it certainly didn't sound like he was our friend based on the way that we were talking about him. It just sort of devolves. And I left that conversation and I thought absolutely nothing of it to show you how hard-hearted and wicked I am. Until a couple of days later, when a friend of mine who'd been present uh, talked to me separately and he said, hey, I don't know about the other guys that may or may not be believers, but we really as, as Christians can't do that. We can't participate in that again. We can't, we can't be a part of sort of tearing down this other person, especially when they're not there. The first thing that happened in my mind uh, was man, you were right there with me. Who are you to talk? Second thing that happened in my mind was, it really wasn't that big, deal, big of a deal. It was kind of just me joking. Third thing that happened in my mind was, well, aren't you Mr. Spiritual trying to tell me what to do? Uh, fourth thing that happened in my mind was, you know what? This really wasn't that big of a deal. Again and again and again. Trying to find ways like Jeroboam to stretch out my hand and destroy the conviction that had just begun to rest heavy on me trying to find ways to circumvent it, trying to find ways using the mind that God gave me to undermine the conviction that the Spirit now brought to me through a brother. I wonder, for you, when the word of God comes in conviction against you, whether that's through a sermon that's preached, whether that's through the word of a friend to you, whether that's through a life group leader sitting down and talking with you, how do you respond to the conviction that sometimes strikes like lightning? Do you stretch out your hand against it? Do you try and find a way to undercut it so that you don't have to feel the weight of it? Or do you receive it gladly and move towards repentance? Jeroboam does none of those things. He stretches out his hand against the word of God that convicts him. His hand withers. We're told that the king now says to him, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God. Pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. The man of God entreated the Lord. The king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it was before. In in a passage like this, in the Old Testament in general, the the temptation is to see it as depicting for us a particularly angry and wrathful deity. I, I hear this countless times from people. I just don't understand how the angry, uh, vengeful God of the Old Testament squares with the loving God of the New Testament. And if that's the lens through which you're reading, you will find an awful lot of wrath in this passage, and it is certainly there. God is angry about the idolatry that's taking place. He's coming in judgment against Jeroboam for violating his commandments. But don't miss what also happens here, that that God has just come against judgment in Jeroboam, uh, he's cracked the altar that he's worshiping at. He's shriveled this man's hand, however medically that happened, although I'm partial towards a muscle spasm because of the YouTube videos I watched. We don't know. And, and all, all he says is, pray for me to the Lord your God. He, he doesn't even claim Yahweh as his own God anymore. He says, pray to your God that my hand might be healed. And even in that slight act of repentance, God relents. Even in this this minor turn, even in this slight request, God relents. In the midst of all this judgment, God is waiting eagerly to show mercy if only Jeroboam's heart would turn. He doesn't even try and approach God himself. He won't even claim God for himself. He says, you pray for me. And even that is enough for God to begin to show mercy towards him. Yes, judgment, absolutely. The wrath of God against sin, revealed against all ungodliness, but see that God is eager to show mercy. He's abundant in love. But Jeroboam is hard-hearted. It's obvious that he's not really sorry. He just wants his hand back. And so he says to the man after he's received uh, use of his hand back, uh, he says to him to come and eat with me. Refresh yourself, I'll give you a reward. In verse 8, the man of God says to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you. I'll not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so was it commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. Now, we got to be honest here. We have no idea why God told him not to do any of these things. All we know is that this man of God who just suddenly appears on the scene is just as sure about what he needs to say about idolatry as he is about what he should or shouldn't do on his way home. And so Jeroboam says, why don't you come eat dinner with me? Probably as a way of buying him off. Probably as a way of sort of getting him on his side. And he says, no, God's told me that I can't do that. And so he begins the journey home. We come to verse 11. We're told that an old prophet lived in Bethel. His sons came and told him all that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told him that the fa- their, they also told to their father the words that he had spoken to the king, and their father said, "Which way did he go?" And his sons showed him the way that the man of God who had come from Judah had gone. He said to his sons, "Saddle the donkey for me." They saddled the donkey for him, and he mounted it, and he went after the man of God and found him staying under an oak tree. And he said, "Are you the man of God who came from Judah?" He said, "I am." He said to him, come home with me and eat bread. He said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water here nor return by the way you came. So the man of Bethel said to him, I am also a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you into your house that he may eat and drink water. But he lied. And so he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. It gets stranger than this. Verse 20. As they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. He cried to the man of God who came from Judah. Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept... The command that the Lord God commanded you. But if come back and eaten bread and drunk water in the place where he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water, your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. After he had eaten the bread and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. And he went on the way, and a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood beside it, and the donkey stood beside the body. If this is your first time in church, it's not all that crazy. (laughs) A a bizarre passage, right? In Peter Lightheart's words, the strangest passage in the whole Bible. What can we say about this? this? This strange turn of events, this man of God comes from Judah, speaks truly the word of God to the king, resists the temptation that the king puts before him and obeys the word of God, then meets another prophet in Bethel who lies to him about what God said. And he, in turn, violates the commandment of God and gets killed by a lion. Two things I would would hold out in front of you to consider in this text. First, consider the brokenness of these men who are both referred to as prophets and men of God. The frailty of these people, the wickedness, the corruption of these people is, is almost hard to fathom. You've got a prophet from Bethel who lies to another man, he says, An angel told me that you can actually do this, even though God told you that I can't. Gets him killed, but after having lied to him about what God said, he actually speaks the truth about what God said, which is, Hey, you're going to die now. You've got a prophet from Judah who speaks the truth to King Rehoboam, and then in turn breaks the commandment of the God whose message he's bearing. These are fractured, broken people, and yet they still carry the word of the Lord forward. I Man, over the last five to seven years, there has been this unbelievable outpouring of pastors who I have looked up to, respected, benefited from, been convicted by, encouraged by, totally imploding, uh, both locally and abroad, entirely falling apart uh, through affairs, through being heavy-handed in their leadership, doing the sort of things that disqualify them from ministry. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe the church that you grew up in, somebody that you respected has done things that are deplorable. Maybe a pastor that led you has ultimately disappointed you. The the, the temptation when we come to these things— is to think that because the vessel for the message was broken, the message itself is deficient. The, the temptation is to think that because of the lack of integrity in the person who preached the gospel to you, it means that there's a deficiency of integrity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why integrity is so important in the Christian life. In, in the life of pastors, of ministers. But, but here's what, what I want you to hear from this text is that the truth of the word of God, the truth of the gospel, it doesn't depend on the perfection of the one who speaks it. The word of God is not bound by human failures, even the failure of human pastors. The word of God goes forward even through corrupt prophets from Bethel and stupid prophets from Judah. So if you've been disappointed by a pastor, if you've been failed by them, Do not think that the gospel of Jesus is as disappointing as the man or woman who once said it to you. One other thing that I would call your attention to is the failure of the prophet of Judah. The first time he's offered food and water, he says no. The second time he's offered food and water, he says no. But then things change. We don't know how much time passes between the conversation with Jeroboam and his conversation with the the pastor, not the pastor, the prophet from Bethel. But I have to I have to think that at least hours, days have passed. He's been walking down the road trying to get home. When when he had the conversation with Jeroboam, he's still riding high off of the victory of having just watched an idol get torn in two and a man's hand shrivel up. But it's been hours. He's hungry now. He's actually thirsty He's actually tired. The commandment that God gave him is now actually difficult for him to follow. And it's in this circumstance that he's willing to entertain a direct contradiction from what God has said. It's not when he's well, it's when he's weary that he begins to ask this question that's echoed ever since Eden, did God really say? Did did God really say that I can't eat or drink anything? Maybe I misheard. Maybe I misunderstood. Is that actually what he said? We are no different. You know, we grow tired of what the Bible says about human sexuality. And so we come back and we say, did God really say? Maybe there's an easier way of understanding the obedience that Scripture calls me to. We don't like the call to steward substances like alcohol well, and so we come back and we say, Did God really say this, or is there another easier way that I can understand this call to obedience? Again and again and again, we look for ways out so that the burden of walking in righteousness can be lifted from us. We are just like the prophet of Judah. He knows what God said, he just wants to do something else. And a number of years ago, uh, my cousin was in Orlando, and he had uh, developed a friendship with a, a guy that was in his church, who was in his 40s or 50s and was still single. Uh, and so he just talked to him, man, what is that like to be at that point in your life? And he said, well, you know, I, uh, I wasn't always single. I was married. I had kids. Um, but one day, God told me to divorce my wife so I could spend more time doing ministry. And <laughs> it's funny in retrospect, but it's also... Horrific in a lot of ways. And my cousin was a relatively new believer, so he, he came to me and he was like, this sounds wrong, but can you explain to me why it's wrong? <laughs> and, and my mind went immediately to, to the book of Malachi. I am the Lord. I hate divorce. I hate divorce. But I would venture to say that God said nothing to this man. This man just wanted to be divorced. And he found a way twist the word of God so that he could in fact violate the word of God. Sometimes we do this out of sheer ignorance. We're so ignorant of what God has actually said that we'll fall for anything. More often than not, we do this out of wickedness. We would rather do something else so we'll find a way around it. The prophet from Judah ultimately dies for his rebellion against the word of the Lord. We're told that In verse 26, the prophet who had brought him back the way heard of this and said, it's the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him. And so he got on his donkey. He went, he found the body thrown to the side of the road, the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. And he buried him. In verse 30, he laid the body in his own grave, He mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. After he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which this man of God was buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. It seems as though he has remorse for the judgment that he's brought on this man. He realizes the weight of his lie and what it has cost somebody else. Nearly a thousand years later, a prophet from Nazareth will arise. And he won't simply be one who bears the word of the Lord, but in the words of the Gospel of John, he will be the very word of the Lord incarnate. And he will be given over to the lions of Roman guards who will crucify him, not because he has violated the commandment of God, but because we have violated the word of the Lord. And he will not be buried in his hometown. He'll be buried in the tomb of another man. But something interesting happens if you are a Christian in this room. When you're baptized, if I baptized you, I use the words of the Apostle Paul, uh, as you go under the water, I say you are buried with Christ in his death, and you are now raised to walk in newness of life. You become like the prophet from Bethel who says bury me with this man. You have gone into the tomb with Christ just like the prophet of Judah. But Christ is not in the tomb any longer. Nor are you buried with Christ in his death, raised to walk in newness of life.